John 16. This is part two of what initially was intentioned to be a single message. As I told you last week, you write the introduction. When you prepare a sermon, you write the introduction as the last thing you do. And when I was done writing the introduction, I had a whole sermon as an introduction. And so we really didn't even get to consider the text that we're going to look at together this morning. But this morning we are going to look at John chapter 16. We're going to be examining verses 12 through 15. I've entitled this, Test the Spirits. We noted last time in a rather lengthy introduction, as I said, where I went through the history of the Pentecostal movement. And I was doing that for you to, to just set a context, a baseline for you, so that you might be refreshed or perhaps educated for the first time in, in terms of the um, tremendous uh, divergence of opinion that is existing in the church today with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this passage in John 16 is really a, one of the seminal passages that we have to consider when we talk about the ministry of the Spirit. What is his role? What is his ministry? Why was he sent? John 16, verses 12 through 15, add a good bit to that, to the answering of that particular question. Now, one thing I do need to do in, um, in the interest of accuracy and clarity, there were two statements that I made last week that were not correct. And so I want to uh, just correct those for the record here. The ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of truth, and so... Um, we need to be truthful in what we say. And there were two things that I said yesterday that were not, or last week that were not truthful. And so I'm correcting, I'm repenting and correcting those statements. Um, and here they are. It was with regard to the ministry of Oral Roberts. And then it was in particular the City of Faith Medical Center, which he said a 900-foot Jesus told him to build. And I said that the place was never occupied, and that is not correct There were 130 beds out of a projected 777 that were occupied for a period of time. So the statement, it was never occupied, is not a correct statement, and I want to make that correction for you. The other statement that I made was that the place was later demolished, and that is also not true. It was never completed, and it was abandoned for quite a period of time, and and it is now, a portion of it is being used, not by the Oral Roberts Ministry, but by another group but the building itself was not demolished. So I apologize for that, and that's what happens to you when you say something that's not written down in your notes, is that many times you have to come back and uh, apologize and repent. But I do want to do that because I think it is important that we are completely truthful in these things. So having, I stand by everything else I said okay, last week. Those are the only changes or corrections that I want to make with regard to what I said last week. All right. This section of John, let me just read it for you. I'm going to begin in chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, and kind of get a running start at this. They're in the upper room here. The time is short. Judas has been dismissed. He's on his way to, to get the Roman authorities to come back and to arrest Jesus. And so... In the, in the moments that remain, Jesus is giving them these final instructions. And he says in verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. 
They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you, remember, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Verses 12 through 15 are where we are this morning. In particular, and we're trying to answer that question, the per- what is that purpose and ministry of the Holy Spirit as Jesus gives us answer here in this section. And I noted last week and this week we'll develop it here, and that is that there, there really is a two-fold ministry of the Holy Spirit of God revealed for us in this passage. This two-fold ministry of the Spirit, and we need to understand this ministry, and we need to imitate this ministry in our own lives so that our ministry locks into what God is doing. God sent His Holy Spirit for a purpose, a twofold purpose that Jesus tells us about here. And when we can understand and imitate that purpose, then our ministry locks in with His. Okay? So the first aspect, if you like, of the ministry here is noted for us in verse 12, and that is that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And we noted again last time that Jesus had just completed three and a half years with these people. There is a lot that he has told them. But he says here that there's, there's more that he would like to tell them, but what, he's, what he would like to tell them, they, they're not ready for it. They can't bear it now, he says. They can't bear it now. The, the idea is that they can't, they can't understand it. They can't process it. They're not ready for the implications of it. And so it's going to have to, to wait for a future event. Now, what kind, of, what kind of things did Jesus want to say to them? What many more things, verse 12, does he have for them that they're just not ready for yet? Well, there's, there's much. I mean, a, a very simple example is that they are not yet ready for the implication of his message that, there is, that the Gentiles are to be included in the, in the, in the Messiah's purpose. 
There's plenty of Old Testament prophecy, and they were certainly aware of that, that there was a time for the Gentiles in the Messianic kingdom, but they were not yet able to really readily process this reality that the, that the Gentiles didn't have to become Jews, that they didn't have to come in through Israel in order to enter into the Messiah's blessing. We see clear examples of that in the book of Acts, right? When Peter goes out and, and he has to have a vision from God before he'll go to Cornelius and, and preach the message to him, and even after he does, the church of Jerusalem is choking over it. So the whole implications that the Messiah's message is a worldwide message that, the, that he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the whole world and not just the Jewish nation is a message whose implications they're just not ready yet to deal with. Beyond that, they are not yet ready to, to recognize the fact that the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees has indeed if, uh, infected all of the nation and that the adoring crowds at Palm Sunday just a few days before are going to be the same crowds that are going to call for his crucifixion. They're not yet ready with the implication of the fact that when Jesus really makes it clear what he requires, that the nation is going to reject it. Is going to turn away from it. Because up until now, things have been going pretty good. It's been a, they've been rising, riding a wave of increasing popularity. When he came down into Jerusalem, just, as I say, less than a week ago, there were the adoring throngs throwing the palm branches into the road in front of him and, and calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole city is stirred up. They're ready to welcome him in. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, yeah, here come those thrones that he promised. Okay? And we know that's true because they were arguing the very night, just shortly before, Luke's gospel tells us, they were arguing about who's going to have what place in the kingdom. So they really haven't figured it out yet that the cross comes before the crown. Beyond that, they still don't understand that the ceremonial law has been abolished in Christ. And it's going to take them quite a while to come to the full implications of that. In fact, it's going to take the Apostle Paul to make it most clearly known. So there are many things, Jesus says, many more things, again, verse 12, but you're just not ready. You just, you can't, you can't pick it up and carry it. Not yet. But something is going to happen here that will enable them to do that. And that something that's going to happen is the coming of the Spirit of God. Okay, look again at verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, it's all going to change. All the things that I want to say to you, but you're not ready for, that's all going to change when he, the spirit of God, comes. Now notice he's called here the spirit of truth. That's a repeated use in John's gospel to refer to the Holy Spirit. That he is the spirit of truth. That is, his ministry is one of truth. He is a truth minister. That is, that he will witness to the truth. Chapter 15, verse 26, right, where it says that he who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. He has a truth-bearing ministry, a truth-witnessing ministry. He's also one who will guide the apostles into truth. That's what it says here in verse 13. And then through inspiration, he will enable them to record the truth. So this one, this Holy Spirit of God, is the, is the truth teller. And so when the truth teller comes, things are going to change. Things are going to change. 
Now, look again closely at verse 13. And notice that it says that he will guide or he will lead them into all the truth. Do you see that? Notice that it doesn't say he will lead or guide them into all truth. But all the truth. There is a, there is a definite article here. And, and by, by intention, Jesus is pointing out something specifically with regard to the truth that the Spirit of God will guide them into. This is not a promise here that, that the disciples, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, will know all there is to know. Okay? For example, they will not understand quantum physics because the Holy Spirit came. That's not the kind of truth that's being talked about here. Instead, what he's being talked about is the truth, that is the, the understanding or the knowledge of specific truth regarding the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the truth that he will lead them into. And it is the significance of that truth that he will guide them in. Now, by implication, understanding Jesus Christ as the Lord and sovereign over all impacts all other areas of knowledge and learning, even quantum physics. Okay? You don't learn quantum physics by reading the Bible, but by reading the Bible, you learn something that intersects quantum physics. That is, that you learn that in Him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. You also learn Colossians 1.16 that by him all things were created, right? Both heavens and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So you understand the purpose of quantum physics, even though you may not be able to do the mathematical calculations associated with it. So there's a very specific promise here. And it's important that we understand what that promise is. The promise is that he will lead them into an understanding of Jesus Christ. That in the days following Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes, the apostles will be led deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth and implications of the fact that God became man and tabernacled among us. They will know who Jesus is and they will know what Jesus has done. Look again at verse 13. Beyond that, at the end of the verse, he will disclose to you what is to come. Do you see that? So not only will he speak to them with regard to the implications of what Jesus' earthly ministry was and, and what he said, but he will also lead them into that which is, flows out of it, that which is to come because of it. He's going to lead them into, well, if for nowhere else, he's going to lead them into prophecy. John the Apostle himself pens the last book of the Bible, right? The book of the Revelation that, that discloses God's final plan. And so there is a promise here for that. He will disclose to you, again, look at the verse, what is to come. By the way, in John's Revelation, seven times it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there is this prophetic ministry that he has through the apostles concerning the future, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than just the book of Revelation. It's the implications that will come because of the ministry and mission of Christ. For example, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 will talk about a, a mystery, right, that has never been revealed, except through him, the mystery of Jew and Gentile together in one body, the church. The Apostle Paul will say over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, he, he says that, that, Behold, I, you know, I tell you a secret. I reveal to you a mystery. 
We will not all sleep. He's talking there about the rapture of the church. And so that whole doctrine is, is disclosed through the ministry of the Spirit of God upon the hearts and minds of His apostles. So there's a lot that the Spirit is doing here. He's disclosing the implications of what has been, and He's talking about what will be. Now, why is the Spirit able to do this? It's addressed for us here again. Take a look at verse 13. He will guide you into all truth for, and that's the reason, for he will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Jesus says the source of the truth that he will lead them into is not of his own. It doesn't come from within him. What his ministry is, is a pointing ministry. And it is to point to Jesus Christ. It is to reveal the truth that Jesus Christ has already spoke. It's not to, to bring new things. But it's to, it's to point to what Christ has already done and the implications of what Christ has already done. You know, Jesus came and said that he didn't speak on his own initiative either, right? He said, when I come and I speak to you, I speak what the Father gave me. I speak to you. The Spirit of God comes in the absence of Jesus Christ. The other one comes, right? Another helper comes, as John uh, as we're told over in John 14, when another helper comes, he does the same thing. He continues to speak that which Jesus has already spoke. And Jesus has spoke that which the Father has for him. So there is a, there is a unity of purpose within the triune Godhead. And it is to express the will of the Father. So he will not speak on his own initiative, verse 13, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The substance of what he communicates is a faithful rendition of what he has heard. He has a, a pointing ministry. He has a repeating ministry. There is a unity in message. There is a unity in the message that comes. It all points in the same direction. And the message is that God's final revelation has occurred in a person in a man by the name of Jesus Christ, right? The writer of the Hebrews, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews 1. The writer of the Hebrews makes that very plain. Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God finished speaking in Jesus Christ. That's the message. When Jesus, all what God said before, finds its fulfillment, finds its locus in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came and spoke, that was it. There's nothing more to come. Nothing more beyond that. His apostles merely fill out Flesh out the implications of that message. That's huge. Because that provides the church of Jesus Christ with the objective criteria necessary to judge all messages that, it, that come its way. It's very simple. Do you want to know whether something is of God or not? Does it square with the message of Jesus Christ? Given... And, and recorded for us here 
in the words of his apostles. Those that have been guided by his Holy Spirit into speaking the same things and the implications of those things that Jesus Christ himself spoke. Jesus is the final revelation. Any other revelation has to be measured against this. And anything that doesn't hold up has rightly been judged by the church for the last 2,000 years to be aberrant, to be cultic, to be outside of the truth. Let me illustrate it for you. In the second century, there was a man by the name of Montanus. And Montanus had two female prophetesses, two ladies. They had left their husbands to follow him, and they claimed to speak. He and they claimed to speak through the Spirit of God. They, they claimed to be speaking for God as prophets. And one of their major accusations was that the, that, the, that the church had, and this is their quote, chased the Holy Spirit into a book. Chased him into a book. And what they were saying is that God had not finished speaking yet. He was continuing to speak, and he was speaking through them. And their notion that, that uh, God had finished speaking and that it was recorded in a book, they, they taught was... Limiting God was missing what God had to offer. Well, in the second century, the church rightly judged them as heretics and cut them off. And fortunately, that, that error did not infect the church, or at least not until our day. So even in the second century, the church fathers recognized that if it did not come through the apostles, then it was not the ministry of the Spirit of God. In the 19th century, there was a man who claimed to have ongoing revelation from God. He claimed that a certain angel had given him revelation and that and you needed a certain pair of golden glasses to be able to understand this that had been written down. And, and rightly, Joseph Smith was judged to be a heretic and was put out. In the 20th century... There are plenty of self-proclaimed prophets who say they continue to speak in the name of God. But if you want to know whether someone speaks in the name of God, you have the objective measuring tool in front of you. You have the canon, which, by the way, means measuring rod. You have the measuring stick in front of you to measure the message. And if it doesn't square up, then you know it is wrong. It is wrong. So you can look at the Reverend Sun Mung Moon and you can say he's wrong. Whether he claims to speak for God or not, it doesn't matter. He's wrong. Because what he speaks is in contradiction to what the Spirit of God, Jesus said, would speak through his people. So the first, the first ministry of the Spirit of God here recorded for us by Jesus is that the Spirit reveals him. Secondly, the Holy Spirit glorifies him. Verse 14. First he reveals him, now he glorifies him. Verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. We have here really the, what I would call the one overarching purpose. If someone said to you, what, why did God send his Holy Spirit? 
If you want to give them a, a short answer that is, that is, that is um, really an umbrella kind of answer and will gather everything up, it's simple. God sent His Holy Spirit, Jesus sent the Spirit to glorify Himself. It's as simple as that. The Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit of God, His role, His ministry is the glorification of Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me. Literally in the Greek, me, He will glorify. It's emphatic. Me, He will glorify. No one else but me. Just me. And how? How does the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? He does it by drawing attention to Christ rather than himself. He does it by drawing attention to Jesus Christ and not to himself. He takes the things of Christ. Look at verse 14 again. He shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. He takes that which Jesus already owns and he discloses it to the world. He's not making up new stuff. In the context here of verse 13 and the whole passage, what is it that he takes of Jesus? It's the truth. He is the spirit of truth. He takes the truth of Jesus Christ and he makes the truth known. That's what he does. He is the spirit of truth. One commentator wrote that the truth, just kind of reflecting on that, he said the truth is something the Father has, the Son owns, and that the Spirit takes. I kind of like that. They're, they're united in a purpose, and the purpose is truth. Truth-telling. The truth about who Jesus Christ is. To the Jews, Peter wrote it this way in Acts 4, 11, and 12. He said, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Right? That's the message of the Spirit of God through Peter. To the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul said it this way. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, furnishing proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It is to point to Jesus Christ. It is to glorify the work of Jesus Christ. It is to point to the cross and all that that means. Apostle Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, for as many as may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes. As many as may be the promises of God, in Christ they are yes. Or over in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, it is in the face of Christ that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The Father is most interested in elevating the Son. The Spirit of God is totally committed to elevating the ministry of the Son. If you want to lock into what God is doing, then you elevate Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. All of this creation bows before Him. God has put it all on Him. 
There is no division within the Godhead. There is no vying for separate glory. It all points to Christ. It is the Father who elects, John 6, 37. It is the Son who atones, John 10, 11. It is the Spirit who points people to that atonement in Christ, John 15, 26. It's all going in one direction. All toward Jesus. And for us, beloved, the words, the deeds, the implications of those words and deeds of Jesus Christ are recorded for us through the apostolic witness in the written word of God. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, Romans ten seventeen, and hearing by the word of Christ. Everything it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. Now, there are those in the church today who would criticize. They would say that we don't give enough attention to the ministry of the Spirit of God. That, that we don't pay enough attention to Him. That He needs to be front and center. That it, His manifestations are, are what's going on today. That's, that's what God is doing today. That doesn't square with what Jesus says. Jesus says that he will come for the purpose of glorifying me. That is his role. That is his, his mission. So, beloved, if, if you're glorifying Jesus Christ, then you can be absolutely assured that you are locked right into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You want a Holy Spirit-empowered ministry? then point to Jesus Christ. Make Jesus Christ the word that comes off your lips. Make the honoring and glorifying of Him the most important part of your life. Point towards Him and not towards you. And then you will experience the blessing of the Spirit of God. You know, I was thinking about this message and I... And I thought, you know, there are a lot of other ministries that the Bible talks about the Spirit does. And I was a little hesitant at first to talk about this as the one overarching ministry of the Spirit until I began to think more seriously about His other ministries. For example, you know, you would say, well, what else does the Spirit of God do? Well, He sanctifies us. Is that not true? Is that not a ministry of the Spirit of God, sanctification? But what is Sanctification. Is it not conforming us to the image of somebody? Who? Christ. Christ. What about regeneration? We talk about the ministry of regeneration as a ministry of the Spirit. Yes, it is. It is granting us new life that we might desire a person who? Christ. What about spiritual gifting? It is the ministry of the Spirit of God to give spiritual gifts to the church, isn't it? But what are spiritual gifts? They are enablements to allow us to minister effectively as the body of who? Christ. Spirit baptism. What is that? It is being placed into the body of Christ. What about inspiration? 
another ministry of the Spirit of God, the inspiration of the, of the Bible. What is all that about? It is, it is enabling the authors to record the words and works of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Every, every ministry you, you look at of the Spirit of God points back to Jesus Christ, never to Himself, ever. He never glorifies Himself. He always points to Christ. Always. Now, you can turn on the television and you can hear all kinds of wild claims today about what the Spirit is doing, right? I mean, it, there's some really amazing things. Some of it is, is uh, quite funny and some of it is um, just tragic. But it, in much of what you see there, there is not a pointing to Jesus Christ. There is either, there is either a pointing to the Spirit Himself or there is... And, and this is most frequent, there is a pointing towards the person. Isn't that right? There is the aggrandizement of the messenger, not the message. You're going to hear, if you've not already, all kinds of wild and astounding claims about the Holy Spirit and what He's doing today. This text gives you one infallible way to cut through the mustard. It's very simple. Does this ministry glorify Jesus Christ? Does this message glorify Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, it's not of the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter what claim the preacher makes. If it does not point people to Christ... If it does not glorify Jesus Christ, if it does not make known the words and the works of Christ, it's not of His Spirit. It's as simple as that. Beloved, we need that kind of clarity today. We need that kind of clarity. The world is so confused. We live in a day and an age when people think they see the face of Christ in a tortilla. Right? Or some sort of soot marks on a subway tunnel. We need clarity. And it'll come right here. Right here. This is your measuring rod of truth. May we be good workmen in the Word. Let me pray. Father God, it is so reassuring to know that in the midst of turmoil, we can have certainty. It is so refreshing, our Father, to know that all of us, not just those who are, have spent years in theological training and studying of original languages and all of that stuff, helpful as it is, but that all may know the truth. Because, our Father, we live in a time when your word is so readily available. Lord God, we have it in our hand. We have the measuring rod. And, Lord, we know that it is through the words of the apostle recorded in this book 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, sent by you to glorify Jesus Christ. And so the chain has an unbreakable linkage that can give us that certainty. Father, we repent of our slovenliness with regard to the Scriptures. We repent, our Father, of the casual and flippant way in which we handle them. We repent, our Father, for the times when we are driven by emotion or some other element rather than by the truth of the Word of God. We pray that you would help us to be like those faithful Bereans. When we hear something, let us examine the Scriptures to see if it be true. We pray these things in Jesus' name.